0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from Your Word. Soften our hearts that we might receive that Word. Transform our wills that we might be doers of that word. Loose our tongues that we might proclaim your word. And we ask this for the glory of your Son, your living word, in whose name we pray. Amen. Augustine was a Christian theologian of the 4th century and by his own confession, his life had been a life of sin. He was foul to the core. Yet he was pleased in that with his own condition. He cared for nothing, he said, but to love and be loved. However, the love that he sought was not true love, but what he was later on to call the murk of lust. For Augustine had a godly and prayerful mother. She pleaded with God for her son, and God answered her prayers. God was at work. He turned Augustine to the Scriptures, and through the Scriptures he turned him to God. And Augustine tells the story. He said he felt his heart flooded with light. He turned from his life of sin and he turned to God. Later he wrote his story in his Confessions and in the very first paragraph of those Confessions he writes one of his most famous sentences. He might even recognise it. He reflects upon humanity and he finds in creature, in humans a creaturely instinct to praise. He says that humans cannot but praise and here is the line because you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they find rest in you. Now, friends, that wonderful thought is found at the end of the first paragraph of the Confessions of Augustine. However, I want to tell you what is found at the beginning of the first paragraph. Augustine starts his confessions with these words, Can any praise be worthy of the Lord's majesty? Those words are a paraphrase of Psalm 145, verse 13. Oh, sorry, verse 3. You see, Augustine knew where to go when talking about God. He knew where to go when you want to find words about the praise of God. He knew the place to turn when you wanted to exalt in the God in whom he had found rescue, contentment and peace. And he knew that place was Psalm 145. And Augustine stands in very good shoes. After all, the Jewish manual for synagogue worship says this about Psalm 145. Whoever repeats it three times a day may be sure he's a child of the world to come. Jews recite this psalm during the special prayer service held on the Day of Atonement, that great day. In Jewish faith, there is no psalm better known or more frequently recited than this one, Psalm 145. In his commentary on the psalms, John Calvin, that great Reformed theologian, says that the description of God given in verse 8 is as clear and as satisfactory as can be found anywhere. This psalm that we're going to look at today is a wonderful treasure. It's a gem among gems, an amazing presentation of our God, something very special. And if you hear and imbibe its message, then you too may be at the door of becoming a child of the world to come. So, friends, please come with me. Let's explore this magnificent psalm together. And let me start by giving you the big picture. Let me show you some of the markers that demonstrate just how special it is. First, did you notice the heading of this psalm? This is the last psalm with the heading. So it's special in that sense. Notice the introduction. In the original Hebrew, the first word is simply praise. Praise. That word is used only once in the heading of a psalm anywhere in the book of Psalms. And this is it. Special again. Third, I want you to notice what is, who is said to be the author of this psalm. The heading says that this is the psalm of David. Now, those of us who read the psalms know, well, so? There's lots of psalms of David in the Psalter. But this is the last one. This is the last psalm of David, the great psalm writer. This is his last word. The last thing he is recorded as saying in this great long book. I reckon that makes it special again. But there's more. Let me show the fourth special thing about this psalm. This psalm is what's called an acrostic psalm. In other words, uh, in the original language, every verse starts with a letter of the alphabet in order. So you sort of do the equivalent of A, B, C, D, all the way to Z. It systematically works through the alphabet. However, as you might know, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and you'll notice that there's only 21 verses in this psalm. In other words, there's a letter of the alphabet missing. Now, it's possible that this might have just dropped out as a result of some scribe being asleep or dropping asleep and then waking up again, or some unfortunate mistake like that. Many translators of the Bible think that this is indeed what has happened. And because one ancient version has an extra line, they've reinserted it between verses 13 and 14. But I think they are wrong. And other translations of the Bible agree with me. You see, I think our author has deliberately missed out a letter. You see, the one letter that is missing is the letter Nun, which is the equivalent to our letter N. Now, in my view, if you're an ancient reader... You could not fail. You'd be going, left, Bet, Emel, and so on. And then you keep going through the alphabet and you think, where's the Nun gone? And you'd stop. And you'd ask yourself, why? And as you did, you'd look back at the previous three verses. And as you did, and as you read them backwards, you'd notice that they are the Hebrew equivalents of our M and L and K. Now, when those letters are arranged in that order, in reverse order, as it were, they make up a Hebrew word. They spell out the noun Melech, which is the Hebrew word for king. And they spell out the verb Malach, which is the Hebrew word for ruling or reign. And when you look at the content of those verses, you can see that that's exactly what they're about. Isn't that fascinating? You read through, you miss out the noon. you read back, and it's all about God the King. God the King and his kingdom. That's a very special psalm again, isn't it? It's wonderfully crafted by David to give us a sort of, if I could put it this way, an A to Z of God the King. The entire alphabet, the source of all words, is marshaled in this peon of praise to God the King. And it caused us to respond by praising this God, the King, with all that we've got. Friends, I've kept this one for you, this psalm. It's it's my favourite psalm. It's just beautiful. Jews cherish it. Christians such as Augustine and Calvin rejoice in it. And I thank God for it. So with that in mind, let's now look at the details and I'll see if I can open it up for you today. Look at verses 1 and 2. They operate as a sort of prelude to the lot. David commits himself to praise. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. He's, he's clear, isn't he? Praise is not something you just do at, one, for, at a one-hour event every week. No, no. No, praise is an attitude to life. It is meant to inform and shape our life. You see, we were made for this. We were made for the praise of God. And praise is not just something you say and forget. No, something you repeat and repeat and repeat. Sometimes you use new and different words. Sometimes you use the same words over and over again. But we were made for this. Can you hear what I'm saying? I, I think there's a deep narcissism in our age. We're focused on ourselves so much. Our lives are a constant round of metaphorical selfies. And praise is a great antidote for that malady, for that sickness. You see, praise turns our attention away from our bondage to ourselves. And it recognizes that we are the creature and that God is the creator, the sustainer, the author, the giver of life. With deep appreciation, we simply behold Him who is the source of life. The author, the giver. Friends, those of us who bear the name of Jesus the Christ, I think must relearn this discipline of praise. We need to be rebuked by David's focus here. God made us for Him. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12, we were made to live for the praise of his glory. As Peter says in one Peter two, verse nine, we were chosen by God. In order that we might proclaim the great deeds of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our vocation as Christians is the adoration and service of God, the father, and it is mediated through God, the son. And it has its focus on God's great works in the son. And it's prompted and infused by God's spirit. We are people of praise. So let's join with David as God's redeemed Christian people and say with him, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. But let's move to verses three to six. In these verses, David turns to his reasons for praise. They are, can you see it there, God's great greatness and God's abundant goodness. Look at them again. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. I will declare your greatness. Verse 3 begins with a declaration of God's greatness. David carries it all the way through to verse 6. Then he turns to God's goodness. Verse 7 celebrates his abundant goodness. Verse 9 proclaims that he's good to all. These two deep truths have been entwined with each other. God is great and God is good. Friends, one of the great risks, I think, as God's people, is to render us under these two great truths. We can emphasise God is great. He can do what he likes, when he likes, how he likes, where he likes. The risk, though, is to see then that God could be capricious. That is great, but not good. This psalm, though, rebukes us. It says, no, no, no. God is not simply great in his greatness. He's abundant in his goodness. Of course, the other side of the coin is that we emphasise God's goodness at the cost of his greatness. That leaves a God who is abundantly good, but who's constrained because he's not great. He'd like to help us. He'd like to be good to us. But he's not great, and so he's constrained. But again, this psalm is clear. And the Bible in its entirety is clear. God is both good and great. And we who are Christians know this to be true. For when we were faced with our nature to sin, That nature we knew would separate us from God. If God was to be holy, he could not look on our iniquity. He could not have us in his presence. But, but, God is good. And God is great. And so through his Son he forges the impossible. He is holy and righteous and punishes sin, yet he's abundant in goodness and love and brings us to himself. This is our God. His greatness is unsearchable. His goodness is abundant. So let us proclaim his awesome deeds in his son, Jesus the Christ. Let's celebrate the fame of his abundant goodness. Let's sing aloud of his righteousness. Friends, this is the sort of king our God is. And that's why the central verses of this psalm, just glory in God, in this king's kingdom. Just look at it, verse 10. Let's look and listen again. All your works will give thanks to you, O Lord. All your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. And make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works, in all his words and kind in all his works. Now, those first 13 verses have declared the great truths of this psalm. God's a great king. His kingdom is backed by greatness. It's endorsed by goodness. Now, in the second half of the psalm, David reflects on this in action. And I want you to listen to these words. Let them wash over you. This morning, allow them to warm your hearts. Allow them to sink deep into your psyche. This is our God, the King. All your works shall give you thanks, O Lord. All your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendour of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Now she listened Did you notice the way David develops his thought? Gradually, David shifts his focus toward our response to God. And that response, he indicates, can be twofold. We can line ourselves up with this God, and if we do, we'll experience that goodness and love that is characteristic of him. He will watch over those who love him. But if we continue to live independently and autonomously, then we'll be barred from his presence, from his goodness, he will act in such a way as to give us what we want. Our autonomy will cause our ruin and his greatness will cause him to destroy the wicked. So there's the detail of the psalm. God is a good king, generous, benevolent and able. Can you hear though the subtext of the psalm? The subtext is we were made for dependence upon him. Our Creator, you see, made us to look to him, to call upon him, to fear him, to love him. And where such an attitude exists, he'll be found to be the God of the open hand. He will raise up the fallen. He'll give them their food in due season. He'll satisfy their desire. He'll do kindness. He'll be near. He'll hear their cry. He'll watch over them. He'll save them. After all, he is God the King. We were made to depend upon him and true life is found in him. I wonder if you'd now do some imagining with me. This psalm has been about God the king, in case you hadn't gathered. Now I want you to imagine what the throne of such a king would be like. Think, throne. What would it be shaped like? What adornment would it have? Where would it be put? Well, The New Testament helps us here. It gives us a glimpse of this throne. You see, in John's Gospel, Jesus uses the language of being lifted up. Chapter 3, verse 24. Chapter 12, verse 32. And when you read it, you think, hang on a moment, this has got a double reference. It means being exalted as God's king, but it also means being lifted up on the cross. Friends, Jesus is God's king. And his throne is the cross. And that is because on the cross, there as he dies on the cross, he exercises the sort of kingship that Psalm 145 talks about. On the cross, God in Jesus raises up the fallen, he does extreme kindness. He opens his hand and satisfies our greatest desire. He hears our cry. He saves us. In Jesus, we see God the King at work. Great in his greatness, abundant in his goodness, gracious and merciful, slow to abang- uh, anger and abounding in steadfast love. So, so what will it mean to live under the truths of this son? What impact will his message have on us today? Let me pose this by asking a series of questions. And the questions are these. First question. If you believe in the message of this psalm, then what will you say? If you believe in the message of this psalm, then what will you say? Well, the psalm writer himself, David, tells us the answer to this. Look at his last words in verse 21. These are the last words of David in the Psalter, as far as we can tell. He says this, My mouth will speak the praises of the Lord and let all flesh bless his name forever and ever. Now, just in your Bibles, go to the next Psalm, Psalm 146, we've your page if you need to. it. What's it about? Well, it's full of praise. So is 147, so is 148, so is 149, so is 150. Friends, if God is really the good and great king, if his kingdom is really all that David said it was in Psalm 145, there can only be one response, and that's the response of Psalm 146 to 150. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So there's our first question. What should I say in the light of God the King? I should praise him. Now, second question. If God is the sort of king that we've seen in this psalm, if he's the sort of king we've seen in Jesus, then what will we pray? Well, we'll, sort of, we'll pray for the sorts of things that this psalm urges us to pray for. We'll say we will exalt in God the generous and benevolent King. We'll pray that His kingdom will be exalted, His reign acknowledged. We'll yearn for His will to be done. We'll request Him to be gracious and kind, generous and kind. We'll ask Him to satisfy our needs. And we'll particularly ask him to satisfy our greatest need, the need for forgiveness of our sins. Knowing that good is found only in him, we will ask him to rescue us from wickedness and evil. In other words, we will pray just as our Lord taught his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer, won't we? We'll pray, perhaps as you did earlier today, or perhaps as you'll do later on in our service today, or... You'll pray this way. So that's our second question. How will you pray in the light of Psalm 145? You'll pray just as the Lord himself taught us to pray. Third question is this. How will you then live? Friends, our nature and our culture promotes autonomy. It promotes self-sufficiency. It endorses human kingdoms, human reign. But this psalm heads off in an entirely different direction. This psalm promotes God and his kingdom, his rule, To sing and read Psalm 145 is to confess your own insufficiency and the sufficiency of God. It promotes the sovereignty of God and the end of human autonomy. It invites us to live in a world determined by God, the loving, great and benevolent King. It tells us you're not determined by yourself, but by a far more fundamental and eternal reality, the pervasive reality of the loving rule of God. Friends, will you live like this? Will you abandon autonomy? Will you cling to this King? Will you trust in His goodness displayed on the cross? Will you exalt in His Son the King? Will you live a life of praise to Him? For this is the life God ordained you for. It's what He created you for, that your life might speak of the praise of this God and that all flesh might bless his holy name for ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, please help us this day. Help us to abandon autonomy. Please help us to cling to your King Jesus. Help us to trust in your goodness as we see it displayed on the cross. Help us to exalt in your Son, the King. Help us to live a life of praise of him, for we know this is the life that you ordained us for, created us for, that our life might speak of your praise and of the praise of your Son and that all flesh might bless his holy name for ever and ever. Amen.